how to explain and describe the, the beauty and the depth and the richness of what we've heard already tonight and sung and prayed. I confess that uh, the weight of the responsibility to do that uh, is something I've felt in the last few years since we began this church, so much so that for the few, first few years, I just asked somebody else to do it. And um, uh, that's been my strategy, but uh, nonetheless, here I am before you. And uh, these are weighty things. And so it may surprise some of you that I begin with Sesame Street. And in fact, a song from Sesame Street that I heard just the other day called There's an App for That. I don't know if you've heard it, but it goes like this. These are the first verse lyrics anyway. If you want to comb your cat, there's an app for that. If you have to fix a flat, there's an app for that. Need a word that rhymes with mat or a place to hang your hat? Got a chimp who likes to chat. There's an app, there's an app, there's an app for that. The idea that this song is, I think, poking fun at, although you can never be sure, is the notion that all of our problems can be saved or solved by technology, or even by our mobile phones. You know, we can now control a lot of our lives from these powerful computers that each of us has, most of us have, in our pockets. Calls, emails, directions, the temperature of our houses, payments. The list goes on. And in that vein, I recently saw this image. This is actually an advert for a children's toy producer, but it illustrates an interesting idea. And the idea is that we have the power within us to save ourselves. Salvation is within our hands or our brains. Tech will save us. And that idea is not a new idea. The Enlightenment was a thought movement that began around the 17th century. It changed the face of the world. The key idea within this movement was that through logic, rationality, and scientific endeavor, humankind would inexorably, inevitably work our way toward perfection. The underlying myth, the story the Enlightenment was telling, was that a new age had dawned and that progress was now inevitable. The very name for the movement, the Enlightenment, suggests that through it, people were going to move from the dark ages to a new age of light. The dark ages where religion and the church ruled to a new enlightened one. The authority that had belonged to the church was now to be given to philosophers and scientists. Nothing, it seemed, would stop the forward march of the human race toward this projected perfection. So long as we dispensed with all those things that were getting in the way, like religion, like God. Now, don't get me wrong, there is much to thank the Enlightenment for, who would want to live in a world without antibiotics? Who would want an operation without an anesthetic? A pandemic without a vaccination? I'm glad to be able to drive a car now and then. I even hope again one day to board a plane, should the government allow it. 
But the idea that the human race was on a long march toward progress and perfection was a lie. And it was shown to be so very dramatically in the 20th century. Because the advances that science and philosophy had offered us couldn't overcome one key challenge. Indeed, the scientists and philosophers didn't even account for the existence of the greatest challenge that humankind, that you or I, will ever face. And that challenge is, of course, the reality of evil. Now, permit me, just for a couple of moments, a GCSE history lesson. First, there was World War I with an estimated 20 million deaths. And for what? Still nobody knows why that war even began. After that, the chaos in financial systems leading to the Great Depression after the Wall Street crash, all of which planted the seeds for World War II. Hitler rose to power in 1933 in Germany. On the back of the Great Depression and the weight of the reparations, Germany was still paying for its role in World War I. And from that position of power, he and his, and his supporters affected a devastating genocide in which they almost succeeded in wiping out all Jewish people from Europe, killing at least five million. The church, largely complicit in the evil, swept away by it, except for a few brave souls who resisted against the tide. But at least we Brits were on the right side, weren't we? Not if you're speaking from the perspective of those in Dresden, where 25,000 died in an evening. Or from Hiroshima or Nagasaki, where atom bombs killed as many as 225,000. The technology that came from the Enlightenment was used to decimate millions of innocents. Surely we learned our lesson after those two world wars. Sadly not. Vietnam and its atrocities, Stalin, Pol Pot, many others besides, and then in the 1990s, the Rwandan genocide. Rwanda, the most Christianized nation in Africa. 90% Christians. And in a period of just 100 days, more than half a million of the racial minority group, the Tutsis, were murdered. Many were killed with machetes or rifles by people they had shared church pews with. Much of it happened in churches and in schools where they'd sought shelter. Rape and sexual violence was widespread, with as many as half a million women raped in that 100-day period. Christian people murdering one another. And that's before we get to any contemporary events. The recognition of evil, of course, that we see in our natural environment with chaos and climate change. The evil in our own systems, our personal relationships, our own nation. Our own lives where sex at times is seen as a commodity. Lives are cancelled through abortion. The unsurpassable challenge to the Enlightenment was and is the existence and the depth of evil in the world. There's no app for that. There's no vaccination or technology to save us from the depth of sin and sickness and brokenness around us and within us. In contrast, Christianity tells a very different story to that of the Enlightenment. 
begins with creation, where a good and loving God creates out of the abundance, the overflow of his generosity and goodness. We were made in his image and likeness as humankind, called and given the responsibility of leading alongside him, under him, stewarding creation under his direction. But then the fall, evil strikes at the heart of creation with a little bit of help, it has to be said from you and I, as we abdicate our job and our responsibility and the whole creation is stained as our relationship with God is fractured. Every part of creation, every human life is included within that assessment. The scripture says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And this means that we're all part of a system that's been corrupted by sin, death, and evil. And we need to be rescued. We need salvation. We don't have the resources within our own hands. Tech will not save us. We cannot save ourselves. But then the story takes a turn, a series of turns as it happens, as God acts again and again in redemption. Time and again he moves to win back his creation, to call back each person and in fact the whole vista of his creation back into his loving embrace. Because we can't save ourselves through our own endeavor, our own blood, sweat and tears. God expends his blood. He spills his blood, his sweat and his tears to save us. The word, as John says, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we've been in a series as a church on, in Lent, about the kingdom of God and the hope that it brings. And we said at the beginning, as Jesus said, in fact, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a declaration that the reign of evil is coming to an end because a new king is on the scene. And that king, Jesus, comes to do violence to evil. He comes to unpick the tragic tapestry of evil. And the good news of the gospel is that God takes the responsibility for redemption, launching a liberation movement of his own from outside the system, coming from him himself. In Christ Jesus, we meet God in the flesh, stooping to become part of the sinful system, so much so that he becomes one of us, as John's gospel tells us very clearly. In Jesus, we see a genuine inbreaking of light, a real enlightenment. This is not light from within the story, but the same light that gave birth to the story. In the first place, the light of God fully revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, the true enlightenment. The enlightenment was a story of light breaking in also, but that light was overcome by darkness, as I've said. In the end, the technologies it created were simply used to destroy life more efficiently, to snuff out the light. But as scripture says, the light of Jesus has shone in the darkness. And the darkness has not, could not, will not overcome it. In the end, the enlightenment we each need is not the enlightenment from ourselves, but an enlightenment about ourselves. Specifically, we need to be allowed to see how much we need rescue and 
how greatly God loves each one of us and is willing to rescue us. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see both of these things. We see what a crooked world we live in. That when God would come in flesh for us, the thing we would think to do to him would be to subject him to the bloodiest, most shameful death imaginable. To exclude him. To cancel him. Because his light made us realize the full extent of our sin by its sheer purity. In Jesus Christ, God was willing to take the burden of all the toxic darkness of the world's evil system onto his own shoulders and into his own body. The cross shows us just how great our need for salvation is. But we also see what lengths God would be willing to go to in order to save us. That is to say, any lengths to the limit of what might be imaginable and then beyond, way, way, way beyond, until God finds himself hanging from a cross. All in the name of love. All to rescue us and to redeem us. To win the victory over the evil that blights the creation he loves so deeply. The sinless son of God absorbs into himself all of the violence and terror of the world. So that we may have a chance to live again. And that is why the symbol found anywhere in the world across the last two millennia is not a shrine to technology or a bust of some European philosopher, but a bruised, beaten man on a cross. God on a cross. Dying for our sins, dying for the sin of the whole world. Because the real problems in the world are not solved by philosophy and technology, though they have a place but by a God who is willing to bear the cost of our salvation, to rescue us from the power of sin and evil. Only this image bears witness to the true state of our world and the true need that every one of us has for redemption. Only this image, this man on a cross, shows us the sheer force of the love that God has for us. On the cross we see what sin has done to the world. And what it's done to each of us. And on the cross we see what sin does to God. And on the cross we see what God does for us to bring us home. To bring us into everlasting light and life. Church, Nottingham, we cannot save ourselves. Not as individuals. Not as a nation not as a church, not as a race. We do not have all the solutions for racial inequality, the gap between rich and poor, the environmental crisis, war, famine, domestic violence, genocide. We don't have all the solutions within our grasp. We must have a rescue. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, we've seen the rescue. We are not as good as we want to believe. Only the sick need a doctor. And the message of Good Friday is that we are all sick.
but the Savior has come to heal us. And he is here even now, ready to welcome us to be with him.